Thank you, Ted, for shepherding us. Eric and Aaron, thanks as well. Well, it's a joy and an encouragement to be here with you this morning. I don't know of any place that is more kind and gracious and and good to be in than the house of the Lord. Um, AV team, if you would be so kind as to uh, put up the first slide. In Psalm 103.8, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord, and this is the God who has saved us, and this is the God who has made us His own. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And brothers and sisters, this is our God. And in the midst of these crazy times, It is so helpful and so necessary for us to stop and pause and remember who our God is, who it is that has saved us, who it is that has brought us into His family, and who it is that has made us whole. This is the God who we worship, and this is the heart of the gospel and the proof of these words is the cross. And the proof, brothers and sisters, is your life and mine. We are testimonies to a God who is slow to anger, who is merciful and gracious, and who is abounding in steadfast love. And really on a Sunday, what is our joy and what is our hope? And in difficult times, what is our joy and what is our hope? When things don't go the way we'd hoped or expected, or we are not treated kindly, or we are in the hospital, what is it that gives us hope and joy? Well, as we listen to the psalmist and we listen to God's word, he brings us back. It's who the Lord is. It's who our God is. It's the privilege and joy of knowing this God to know His mercy and to know His grace and to know His steadfast love. And brothers and sisters, this is so necessary, especially in a time when many and many who profess to be Christians are very much the opposite. We're living in a time where it seems people are increasingly quick to speak, whether it be in social media or wherever. We live in a time where people are increasingly quick to anger. And quite frankly, we live in a time where people are increasingly quick to kill, whether it be taking of their own lives or the lives of others. This has been the reality of our world and our nation. And I don't know about you, but it seems like to me, wherever I turn these days, People, believers and unbelievers alike, seem increasingly anxious. And people seem increasingly agitated. And people seem increasingly angry and contentious. And I don't think it's any surprise that our world and the places we enter, including our churches, seem increasingly violent. And so... This Sunday and next Sunday, what I would like to do for us as a church is for us to consider what God has to say to us about His grace 
and what he has to say about our anger. And I want to draw your attention this morning to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to go back to where we left off a year ago. A year ago, a little more than a year ago, we finished up in Genesis chapter 3. And as I was praying through what I should do this summer and consider from the pulpit what the Lord would have before us and in light of much of what we've been through as a church and much of what we're going through in America right now, this wave of anger and violence, uh, it seemed fitting that we hear from the Lord himself what he has to say about our anger, but not only our anger, but his grace. And it's fitting to come to Genesis because Genesis is very much an introduction to who God is. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. And I'll remind you a little bit just as a warm-up, just to give you a context as we go back. You'll recall that the book of Genesis is not only the first book of the Bible, it is the first part of a five-part text known as the Torah or the instruction or the Pentateuch. And it was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during the time that God gave Moses to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What Ted read about in Deuteronomy this morning. Sometime between 1400 BC and 1440 BC. Somewhere in between there. Moses had some time on his hands. Wandering for 40 years in the desert. And the Lord uses those times when he puts us on hold. Whether it be in a hospital bed or in prison. To have the opportunity to consider who our God is. Who is it who is leading us? And it's during this time that Moses puts down Genesis through Deuteronomy and it's meant to be a reminder for the people before they go into the promised land, who is it that has saved you? Who is it that has brought you out of slavery and the bondage of sin in Egypt? And who is it that is bringing you into the promised land? Who is this God? And it's written down not only for the generations to come so that they will not forget the mighty works of God and his promises, much of what Ted prayed about this morning, but it is also left for the generations to come and the people of God and for us. Because brothers and sisters, we live by the promises of God and it's the promises of God that hold us in dark times. And that is because the God we worship always keeps his promises. And so in Genesis, the Moses and the Holy Spirit through Moses is laying this foundation for this people, reminding them who their God is. Why? Because brothers and sisters, when it gets hot outside and the food isn't good and life is rough and we don't get the jobs or the spouses or the families we think we deserve, somehow we forget very quickly who our God is. And you'll recall that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Lord God shows us He is the creator king of heaven and earth. And He reminds us that we are His creation. We are not His employers and we are not His boss. He is not our genie. We are His creation, but we are His holy creation. He's created us in His image as precious in His sight so that we might reflect His holiness, His goodness and His grace and His love. And then as we come to Genesis chapter 3, as sin enters into creation through the first man and woman, through their rejection of God's rule over their life and their rejection of God's word, we would rather do things our way. 
God shows us he's not just a king who creates. He is a holy king who judges and saves sinners. He's a holy king who judges and saves sinners. And this brings us to Genesis chapter 4, our text this morning, where the Lord God shows us through the lives of Cain and Abel how sinful desires and selfish ambition divide and destroy our hearts, our lives, and our families. And dare we say even our churches as well. But he also shows us, and there's good news here, he's showing this to us because he's pointing us to the remedy. He's showing us that our only hope for sinful and angry men and women is a savior and a salvation that is greater than our sin. We need something and someone who is greater than us if we're going to be saved from what divides our hearts and slays one another and divides our homes and our families. And just to let you know, this is part of a two-part series, possibly three. We'll address it. We'll just get started today. And today is very much about laying the foundation. And part of Genesis 4, I believe, shows us you can't really begin to understand our anger and how destructive it is and why our anger is so destructive until you first begin to understand God's grace in our lives. And the big truth of where we're going, we might not get there today, but where we're marching towards is that the gospel is the only hope and remedy for our sinful and destructive desires. The gospel is the only hope and remedy for our sinful and destructive desires. And this truth, well, the Lord begins to lay the foundation for us in Genesis chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? And we'll read this morning verses 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel. And he killed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and it goes right back to the beginning, and it shows us that anger and murder and violence is nothing new to humanity. It's been there since sin has entered into our hearts. And it's with these God-breathed words, the Lord shows us how from the very beginning, selfish ambition and anger, the selfish ambition and anger, not of God, but of men, divides and destroys family and lives. And It does so by separating us from the grace of God's word. 
Because that's how this portion of Scripture starts. It starts with the grace of God's Word, and it ends, at least where we stopped, with a murder. And what is it that comes in between? God's grace and this really terrible and violent and destructive sin. It's the anger of man. And very specifically, as the Lord shepherds Cain, we see it's an anger that comes from selfish ambition of Cain not getting what he wants and not being treated the way he believes he should be treated. Cain doesn't get his rights or his freedoms, does he? And we see how this anger and this selfish ambition and this offense over what we deserve or how God should treat us really starts to take and how it crumbles and how it really begins to destroy the fabric first of our relationship with the Lord and the grace He's given us, but then with one another horizontally. And of course, the Lord has put this here so that He can show us what that remedy is. And that remedy, as we'll see as we come to the end, begins with listening to what the Lord has to say. But going back to the beginning, to the very beginning... And sometimes it's a little bit hard to see. You have to see the context. This passage of Scripture, Genesis 4.1, begins with God fulfilling His promise to Adam and Eve. It begins with His grace, a grace that comes through His Word. And to appreciate this, you have to go back a little bit to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Genesis 3 ends with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden or driven out by the Lord. And they're driven out by the Lord from the Garden of Eden and from fellowship with the Lord in the Garden because of their sin. Because they have willfully chosen to disobey God's Word and they have willfully chosen a path after listening to the lies of the serpent that they can do better without God. They don't need God. They don't need His Word. They can do a better job on their own. And they find out very quickly that God's word is true. That when we walk away from the word of the Lord, we walk away from his love and we walk away from his life. And we do this in our marriages, our families, in our work, wherever we go. And as we do so, God's word is true. There is death. And that death is a separation from God. The only one who gives us life. Well, that's where Genesis 3 ends. But We also remember from Genesis 3 that even as God judges them and is true to his word and sends them out of the garden, God does not completely abandon them. He clothes them with skins of animals, but he also has given them a promise along with his judgment in Genesis 3 verses 14 through 16. God promises a child who will one day crush the head of the serpent. And as we come to Genesis 4, we see the first step in the fulfillment of this promise is the undeserved gift for Adam and Eve of a marriage, a family, and a child. And this is what brings hope and joy and encouragement very specifically to Eve. And to two very undeserving sinners. And this is where Genesis 4 begins. It begins with the grace of God's promise that brings true hope and grace, and points us towards the salvation of the Lord. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. True hope and joy and salvation for sinners are found in the grace of God's promises. True hope and joy and salvation for sinners are found in the grace of God's promises. Brothers and sisters, as we live in this fallen world where everything is falling apart, where do you find your joy? 
Where do you find your hope? And ultimately, where do we find our deliverance? And the flip side of that, brothers and sisters, is how much of our disappointment, our discontent, and our anger comes from not getting what we think we deserve. Our freedoms and our rights. Very specifically, what we think we deserve in our place of work, our career, our education, our families, our spouses, our children, straight across the board. God's grace is, by definition, God's unmerited favor. God's grace, by definition, is God's unmerited, undeserved. We don't deserve it, His favor. And from Genesis 3 onwards, God's grace is not about sinners getting what they deserve, which is hell and damnation, right? That's what they deserve. They've said, Lord, I don't want to be about your business. I don't want you. I don't want your word. We can do better on our own, all right? And justice and holiness, getting what they deserved is God's wrath and judgment. Well, God's grace, brothers and sisters, is about sinners not getting what they deserve, And God's grace, brothers and sisters, is all about sinners like us. You and I getting what we don't deserve. And those are the gracious promises of God where God provides us. If by faith we're willing to listen to Him and receive Him, it's receiving a second chance and an opportunity to walk with the Lord when we've really blown it. And this is the God we worship, brothers and sisters. He's the God of second chances. He's the God who is gracious and merciful and kind. And He is the God who provides us in the midst of testing and temptation with a way through. And it's this, brothers and sisters, that brings true hope and lasting joy in a sinful world. And the testimony of God's grace comes through His promises. It's His grace that He gives us. And in Genesis 4.1, God's promise of grace that He gave in Genesis 3 begins... To be fulfilled with the words, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Now, you go back to Genesis 3 and you'll recall Adam's response to being held accountable to his sin before God. In Genesis 3.12, what does he do? He abandons his wife, he throws her under the bus, and he blames her for his sin. Right? This woman you gave me. Look at verse 12, Genesis 3, 12. How does Adam refer to Eve? He does not refer to her as his wife. He refers to her as the woman you gave to be with me. Brothers and sisters, it's not rocket science to see that this is a relationship and a marriage that has been broken by sin. And yet as we come to Genesis 4.1, though Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden, God also shows us how His promise and care for them have in fact given Adam and Eve a new beginning. What is it that has put these two people back together again? What is it that brings Adam back and enables him to know Eve, not as the one to blame, 
Not as the one to hate. Not as the one to pin as the source of all his problems. That now that he labors, he's got to labor in a world filled with thorns and thistles and briars and all of those difficult things. It's the promise of God. The promise that somehow God is going to bring good. And he's going to bring good through their offspring. And in Hebrew, and in this context, the idea of to know is the idea of knowing someone spiritually and physically entirely in a very, very intimate way that is safe and protected and that is sacred and holy. Brothers and sisters, what is it that unites Adam and Eve? It's nothing less than the grace of God that comes through His promises. And as we think about our marriages and our families, and we think of our church, what is it, brothers and sisters, that gives us hope as sinners that will hold things together? Well, if you think it's your paycheck or your career, how great a person you are, you are sadly mistaken. And we see... In Genesis 4.1, what happens as God gives them this unity and this gift? Eve receives what she could never acquire or accomplish by herself. And she admits as much. Genesis 4.1 says, and she conceived and bore Cain. And what's Eve's response and follow-up to this? Man, that was painful. Is that what she says? Does she come and look around and say, Adam, how are you going to provide and how are you going to pay for diapers and where are we going to live? Now let's remember, they've been cast out of the garden. Life is not easy. They have to fend for themselves. If anybody has a reason to look around and say, this is going to be hard and this is going to be difficult, how are we going to hold it together? Of all people, it should be Eve. And yet, what does Eve say? She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And Eve acknowledges that the child that she has, as is, brothers and sisters, every child from conception onwards, this child is a gift and a work of God's grace that none of us deserve. This is not my right. I don't deserve to have children. This is a grace of God's promise, which in verse 2 continues with Eve conceiving and bearing again a second son and a brother for Cain named Abel. And we see here, brothers and sisters, that the focus of the text and the focus of Eve's heart is on what the Lord has done in her life. And through that, I believe Eve is able to see at least a glimmer of hope and encouragement that maybe the world isn't perfect yet, but God has promised a child. And God has promised someone one day who will come and conquer and crush the serpent. And as we think about this for our own lives, brothers and sisters, it's worth stopping and considering as we live in a fallen world, what is it give, that gives us patience? What is it that gives us hope? What is it that allows us to hang in there? Is it focusing on everything that we think we deserve? Or is it the eyes of faith that enable us to see how the grace of God's promise is actively at work in our lives? 
And I think about that as we think about those of us who we love who are sick at this time. Those of us who we love who are in the hospital. Those of us who we love around the world who are suffering at this time. Where does true hope and lasting joy come from? Well, as we think about the Apostle Paul as he's in prison, he does the exact same thing. As we think of David, the psalmist, as he's being chased by Saul. And David, by right, is supposed to be what? King. God said so. He's been anointed by Samuel. He's supposed to be king. And what is he doing? Hiding out in a cave. And if you know the ancient Near East, caves are the places where animals go and people go to dump their garbage. That's where David's hiding out. And what is the source of hope and joy and encouragement for David? As you read through the Psalms, well, he goes back and he considers the mighty works that the Lord has done. And he considers the promises that God is the God who keeps his promise. And if God has said that David is one day going to be king, then David will one day be king. And so we understand as we go through the Psalms why David and the psalmist so frequently call us to wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord. And as we shepherd those who are struggling this time and this season, rather than encouraging people to get on social media and shake their fist and get out there and protest and jump up and down, right? I think it's a help and a balm and encouragement to remind them of a God who is merciful and gracious and keeps his promises, who we don't understand completely. But to point out the ways in which God's promises are actively working in our lives in the present, that his grace is at work in our lives, that everything we have is a testimony to that, our families, our brothers and sisters, our church, our family members, to see them as a gift of God's grace rather than an object to blame or an obstacle to stand in our way. And through that to be reminded that the Lord is really worth waiting for because he is good and his promises are good. Well, this is where Eve's family begins. It begins with the grace of God's promises. But verse 2 is quick to point out to us that though both Eve's sons begin as a gift of God's grace, the direction of their lives becomes very different. Abel becomes a shepherd and a keeper of sheep, while Cain, the firstborn, follows in his father Adam's footsteps as a worker of the ground. But as we come to verses 3 to 7, God begins to show us that what really begins to separate these two individuals, these two brothers, is not primarily their profession, what they do. But what really begins to separate them is how they respond to the grace God has given them. How they respond to the grace God has given them. And you're going to see this throughout the Old Testament. You're going to see pairs of brothers who go two separate ways. You're going to see Judah and Joseph. You're going to see Jacob and Esau. right? And it's going to happen over and over again. And the dividing line between these brothers repeatedly is how they respond to God's promises. Will they believe God's promises? How do they respond to the grace that God has given? Are they going to take matters into their own hands? Esau, Judah? Or are they going to wait for the Lord Joseph, even while he's in prison. And we see the similar pattern here right from the beginning. Why? Because this is the nature of our hearts. And this difference in the way they respond 
to the grace of God takes these two brothers on two very separate paths. And it's expressed in their worship and the two different offerings that the two brothers bring to the Lord. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Which is the Lord God cares about how we handle His grace. The Lord God cares about how we handle His grace. Because this is what these offerings are all about. In verses 3 and 4, we see that after a period of time of laboring as a shepherd and a worker of the ground, both Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Now it's worth noting for a little bit of context that offerings do not appear in the Bible and in Scripture, sacrifices and offerings don't appear until after Genesis 3. In the garden, there are no offerings. And it's not until sin comes into the world that offerings become a central part of worship. And in the ancient Near East and in many religions, we know that offerings are not unique to the Jews or Christians. Offerings are a central part of worship. They are gifts and sacrifices in many of the pagan religions that are required to draw near to your God. Before you can come to your God, you've got to bring an offering. And why do you do this? Well, in most religions, it's in order to earn favor from that God. It's an exchange program. It's your ticket to admission to the party. I bring a good offering. I get a good harvest. I get many children. I get prosperity. I get victory in battle. I'm going to go into battle. I go see my God. I bring him a really great offering and sacrifice. I cut them up. I give it to the God. If he's pleased, I go out and I get victory in battle. Right? It's a payoff program. You're paying to earn the favor or the grace of your God. But brothers and sisters, in Scripture and in Genesis 4, it is the opposite. And I say this because this is going to play into Cain's anger. In Scripture and in Genesis 4, it's the Lord God who is the first to give His grace to people who do not deserve it. In Scripture... Everything we have, our lives, our livelihood, our family, all of these things are a gift of His grace. And the people who come to the Lord are coming because by grace God has saved them and He's brought them into His presence and He's made them His people. If you're not God's people, you can't come to Him. So there's a salvation and a grace that is already there. And worship and offerings are about our response to God's grace in our lives. Our worship and our offerings are a response to God's grace in our lives. And brothers and sisters, our offering, what we give to the Lord, and the way we give to the Lord, speaks volumes about what we think of the Lord, and what we think of His grace, and what we think about what He has done for us. And this is why the Lord cares about how we handle His grace and why He cares about the offerings and why, as you heard from Ted weeks before in Leviticus, God requires that we bring His offerings and that we serve Him and that we worship exactly as He has prescribed. And He does this to protect us. And in Genesis 4, we see that the Lord God has given Cain and Abel three sacred gifts. What's He given them? He's given them the gift of life. 
He's given them the gift of life. These two men are born as a result of God's promise to Adam and Eve. He's given them the gift of their livelihood. Adam as a tiller of the soil. Excuse me, Cain as a tiller of the soil like Adam. And Abel, shepherding sheep. Now remember God's promise and his judgment to Adam and Eve. Life is going to be hard for you. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. All this plenty that you have in the Garden of Eden where you can fellowship with me without a problem and you can eat without a problem and we are just here enjoying one another. That has been destroyed by your sin. You're going out into a hard life where work is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Life is not going to be easy. And yet we see with Cain and Abel, they not only have a life, but they are given a livelihood in which they are able to provide for their families. Brothers and sisters, as we think about our jobs and our careers, and so often that's an area of great discontent, is it not? There was an assassination of a Japanese prime minister this past week, right? Or an ex-prime minister. Who was it? A retired or unemployed sailor who made his own gun and shot this Japanese prime minister. How much of our discontent, brothers and sisters, comes over our work and our careers? And yet as we come to Genesis 4, contextually the Lord chose us. The Lord doesn't owe us a livelihood, brothers and sisters. He doesn't owe you a career. Whatever we get from the Lord is a grace and mercy that is something that we don't deserve. He gives these brothers the sacred gift of life. He gives them the sacred gift of a livelihood and work. But greatest of all, he gives them the gift of himself. His holy presence, his fellowship, his rule over their lives. By right, these two boys should be fending for themselves. And yet we see as Genesis 4 proceeds, these two young men are able to come and draw near to the Lord. There's a relationship somehow there that we don't fully understand or is not fully explained where the Lord is still willing to shepherd and talk to these two young men. And how do Cain and Abel respond? How do they handle this grace that the Lord God has given? And I just want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. We should never take for granted that you can come into a church on Sunday. And certainly there are many places in the world where the idea of being able to gather freely and sing God's praises and stir one another up to love and good deeds is a fantasy or a dream as they gather in small groups under police surveillance. Right? We don't deserve this. It's a gift from the Lord. And it should be reflected, brothers and sisters, in how we love and care for one another. Well, how do Cain and Abel respond to this grace that they've been given? Well, in verse 3, Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. But Abel, verse 4, and Moses goes into more detail here, in contrast to Cain. He does not simply, simply bring an offering. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn was the most important, the preeminent, the representative of the entire flock. And it also says he brought of their fat portions. Now as you go to the book of Leviticus, and remember this is all one package, Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
And those who are reading Genesis would have had exposure already to the sacrifices in Leviticus. But Leviticus makes clear that the fatty portions are considered to be the best and most pleasing to the Lord. Why is that the case? Who likes scrawny animals? When you go for that T-bone and you go for that steak, which one do you like? The Wagyu or the Kobe or, you know, the one that's been shriveled and running? Right? This idea of the fatty portion, of a fatty portion, of a lamb that has fatty portion, is the idea that this is an animal that has been nurtured and loved and cared for. It's a symbol of your love. This is not the one you run into the ground. This is not the nag who you've thrown out. It's a symbol of love, brothers and sisters. And so we see with Abel the desire of his heart in this offering. We see the direction of Abel. And later in Hebrews, it tells us that Abel gave this offering by faith. Faith meaning he appreciated and believed all that God had promised and who God is and who God said he was. And probably what his mother and father had taught him about the Lord. And what's the desire of his heart? To give the Lord the very best and to give what is pleasing to the Lord. We think of Paul in the New Testament saying we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. And we see by comparison Abel gives the best and gives to please the one who has given him grace whereas Cain gives. And it's worth brothers and sisters to think of ourselves as we serve the Lord. Do we serve? Or do we serve in a way that expresses love and faith for the grace that God has given us. And as we give, brothers and sisters, and I'm not just talking about money, talking about time, love, and care, do we give? Or do we give the best? And do we give to please the Lord? Well, brothers and sisters, what we give and the way we give speaks volumes about what we think about the Lord and what we think about His grace, and what we believe about His promises. And it speaks volumes about the desires of our heart, and it speaks volumes about what we think we deserve, and it speaks volumes about what fills our thoughts and our desires. And in verse 4b through 5, Moses shows us the Lord's response to these two brothers. And to these two offerings. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And this term to regard means accept or affirm. The idea is that the Lord looked upon one, but he did not look upon the other. It wasn't good enough. Didn't cut mustard. And what's interesting is it talks about Two together, it talks about, if you look at those words there, it says the Lord had regard for not just Abel, not just his offering, for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And in this way, the Lord is showing us, as he looked at Cain and Abel, he looked at their offering, what they did with the person. The two were connected, they weren't separate. They were identified together. 
He didn't separate or distinguish between the two. The offering was a reflection of the person. And we see this in Asian cultures, right? If there's an important person who comes, you want to give big. Why? Because you want to look big in their presence. It's a reflection of who you are, right? You're going to give generously because you want to be seen as a generous person. Well, we see here that the Lord is not blind. The Lord is not deceived. And the Lord cares about the way in which we handle the grace he's given us. And to Abel and his offering, he affirms and he accepts, but for Cain, he does not. And this is because, brothers and sisters, the Lord God is holy. And he loves his people with a holy love. That's what Genesis is all about. And he will never accept or affirm a love that is not good, a love that is not right, and a love that is not holy. And by holy here we mean a love that is wholly devoted to the Lord. It's not pleasing the Lord to give some and hold something back. That's why in the sacrificial offerings you give of the first fruit. The idea is the harvest comes in, you give the first. The lambs come, you give the oldest and best. It's the idea, all of this, Lord, belongs to you. It's wholly yours and it's a tribute and it's a symbol and it's a representative that all we have, all we desire, all our love, it is all given to the Lord. And it's a public declaration of tribute. And we see in the New Testament, as we come to the New Testament, to Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in the New Covenant. He says we're to give our bodies to the Lord as a sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. We don't hold back what we do on Monday and Tuesday nights. All of it, Paul exhorts us to give entirely to the Lord. And then we come to the book of Revelation and we see Jesus' rebuke of the church of Laodicea. Why does he rebuke the church of Laodicea? Do you remember? It's because they're lukewarm. They're knowledgeable. They probably know a lot about doctrine, but in their service... They're lukewarm. And he says, I will spit you out. It's a terrible thing. But you know, the Lord is saying, that's not the way I loved you. When I gave my son to die on the cross, did I love you a little bit? And did I hold something back? No, I gave you everything. And if you're going to be part of my family, and if you're going to walk with me, then my standard, and this is very gracious within the sacrificial system, It's not that you're perfect, though you're to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But He knows we can't be perfect. But instead it is that we would give ourselves entirely to Him. Because only He can make us perfect and only He can make things right. Well, the Lord does not accept Cain's offering. And what is Cain's response to the Lord's assessment of Cain and his offering? And what is really Cain's response to the holiness of God? Verse 5 says, So Cain was very angry, intensely angry, literally burning and on fire. And his face fell. And Moses points out, Cain's not just angry. It's a forest fire. And this idea of his face falling is a Hebrew idiom. It's the idea that his face is dark, it's downcast. 
It's not lifted up in joy. It is visibly falling apart. Cain's body is physically expressing his anger. And it's with this description the Lord God through Moses gives us the very first account of human anger. And it's not good. And it's a description that's markedly different from the world. And this brings us to our last point this morning. And we'll just begin to touch on this. And as you see, I have to confess I've cheated on you. Our last point is really three points, but it's my stealth bomber, okay? Anger is more than a feeling. Anger is a whole person response to what offends us. And anger begins in the heart. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time and place where anger frequently is defined as a feeling or an instinct. The Oxford Dictionary says, anger is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. The Healthline website says, anger is a natural, instinctive response to threats, i.e. a reflex. And anger is considered not to be a problem until we cannot control it. Until our anger causes us, and this is taken from the Healthline website, it's, it's a problem. When does anger become a disorder? It happens at the point where we can no longer control it and it causes us to say or do things that we regret. And that's how the world describes anger. And when you see this definition, an instinct or a reflex or a response, we understand in the world, what's the remedy for anger? It's anger management. It's either methods or medicine to control our feelings. That's what the whole industry is about. And as you read and you go and you just see, how do we control? How do, it's as long as it doesn't get too big and as long as I don't say something embarrassing or I regret. So how do we teach people... It's to mark out the cuss words and mark out the angry things and sanitize it and just keep the other stuff. And even then we're having a hard time, right? But as we come to verse 5, Moses shows us graphically that our anger is about much more than our feelings or our instincts. When he comes and he says that Cain's face is on fire, where he's on fire, and that his face is falling apart, that you can visibly see that it is affecting the configuration of his face. Our God is pointing out that anger is a much deeper problem than a feeling or a reflex. That it goes into the entirety of our spirit and our body. It is a whole person response. Every aspect of our life is part of this anger, like a forest fire that has lit a building on fire. And rather than being neutral, it's about a direction. And typically it's a response to something that has offended us, something that we believe is not right. And to help Cain appreciate this in verse 6, the Lord God steps in. And he speaks to Cain. And as you see, what he does is really a typical example of biblical counseling, shepherding. Where does biblical counseling begin, brothers and sisters? Why do we emphasize it? Because this is the way the Lord shows us grace and kindness and steps into our lives. 
Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? What the Lord does with his word is he holds up a mirror to Cain, who's so consumed by his anger, to show him the direction of where his life is going. Men, for many of us, the grace of that is our spouses, right? How many times the boys will tell you, as Julie said to me, Mark, you don't look good. Right? And it's a cue now in our marriage. And it's like, okay, man, better spend some time with Jesus. This isn't good. Clearly, in the oldest, I'm not upset. No, I'm not upset. And then I wake up the next morning convicted by the Holy Spirit and the word of the Lord. Honey, I was upset. You were right. Okay? Because when we're lit up, brothers and sisters, and it's consuming the entirety of our body and our life, we can't see because the flames are so big. And what is the kindness of the Lord and what is the kindness of his word? Psalm 19 that exposes hidden sins. The Lord graciously comes to us and shines a mirror to us. How often do we like that, brothers and sisters? And how often do we push back? No, you're not right. But that's what the Lord does. And then the Lord proceeds to ask another question. He says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And with this question, the Lord begins to probe. Cain's heart, his thoughts, what he thinks, and his desires. And he shows us that our anger is more than just a feeling. It is tied to what is in our hearts. It it is tied to what we think. It is tied to what we believe. And it is tied to what we desire. And the Lord graciously is pointing Cain to the root and to the heart of his problem, which comes down to, as we'll see next week, Cain has not been validated by God. He didn't get what he wanted. And he believes he's right, and he believes who's wrong. God is wrong. Brothers and sisters, As we come to the New Testament, we come to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I have my last slide, please? Jesus says to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be guilty and liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty and liable to judgment. And this is part of the context. Jesus draws this connection between our anger and murder and what's going on in our hearts. And just as he spoke to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he points out that we need something much greater than anger management or talking things out in order to address the anger that lights us up and divides our homes and separates us from the grace of God. And I say this, brothers and sisters, because we live in a time where people feel that the remedy for anger is posting a blog, getting on social media, contending with people, getting out there, protesting, walking around. And as you come back here, the Lord is pointing out to Cain, look, your problem is a lot deeper than that, and group therapy isn't going to solve this problem. In fact, it's probably going to stir things up. And we see where God begins to provide the remedy for Cain's anger. 
And the remedy begins, brothers and sisters, by listening to the God who has loved us and who has given us His grace through His promises. That's where it begins. And what we'll see next week as Cain turns that off and says, I'm not going to listen and I'm going to do my own thing. That is the path that leads to an anger that destroys and ultimately kills his brother. And we see God in his mercy and grace shows us, brothers and sisters, where do we find our joy? Where do we find our hope? Where does it begin and how do we turn the corner? Even if, let's assume, Someone has done us wrong. It begins, brothers and sisters, by taking the time to stop, not being quick to speak, but instead to begin to listen and receive the words of the God who loves us, who is greater than our anger and our sin, and already through His promise has provided us with a Savior and a salvation that is greater than our sin and all the ugliness in this world. And so that, brothers and sisters, is my challenge for you this week. Will you take time this week in the midst of all that is going on? And will you stop and listen? And will you listen to the words of the Lord, the one who loved you and died for you and has made you his own? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, We just thank you that for however much we fall short and however much we sin and however much our offerings really fall short, Lord, of handling your grace well, you demonstrate your love to us by giving us your gospel and by speaking into our lives and by continuing to give your love and your promises through your word. May we listen, Lord, and may we receive a grace that we do not deserve. In your name we pray, amen.